So our speaker this morning is Dave, and Dave doesn't know all of our traditions around here, but I had to impress upon him that at 10.15, you know, these people are expecting cookies and coffee, all right? So when it gets close to 10.15, I'm not going to need to give him the sign, am I? Because you are, you know. <laughs> Some sort of a sign that says, uh, okay. But uh, no, for 9 o'clock till 10.15, uh, let's introduce, uh, let me introduce our speaker once again, Dave. And uh, as we get started, let me offer a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for waking us this morning. We thank you for the air that's in our lungs, lungs that uh, you gave us and air that you gave us to breathe that we might praise you. Thank you, God, for our minds. You want to fill our minds with all things that are pure and noble. Thank you, God, for your word that you have revealed to us that uh, we might know who you are. Thank you, Lord, for sending us, Dave, as your messenger to speak to us about Nehemiah, to make words written so many centuries ago made relevant to us in our lives today. So bless him as he comes to teach. Bless us as we've come to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome day, folks. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks. Thanks for allowing me the opportunity. Thanks for being here today. This is going to be fun. I really, uh, I find myself really enjoying settings like this, where we can kind of interface with each other and we can talk to each other. So my goal as we spend time together is that this won't be you sitting and listening to me for however long but it'll be a little interactive, we can do it. Uh, I'll be putting you all kind of in little groups every once in a while, say, hey, find three or four buddies and call yourself a group. But what I'm gonna do is, could you help me with this? Could you just distribute that note sheet, make sure everybody has one of those as we do? I think there should be enough there. If there's not, find a buddy and you can do that. Last night, I made a terrible error. Um, it, it just, it, I, I didn't realize till after the fact, so I couldn't correct it. Um, Kevin is just incredible. I love Kevin. He's, he's, he's an amazing guy, isn't he? And what a leader. What a leader. And uh, I misspoke and called Alan Eileen in the service. And so I didn't sleep last night at all because it just bothered me all night how I did that. But, but she is a tease. She is a tease. So would you do me a favor today? Let's all, when the first time you see her, say, hey, Eileen, how you doing? Okay? <laughs> Just kind of roll with it, okay? I told her it's okay if she wants to call me Dennis. That's my brother's name. And for years, everybody gets me mixed up, and Dennis and I are close to the same age, and, and uh, he was senior vice president at Bethel College at Denzar Church. And so it's not uncommon for me to be called Dennis. So it's okay. I said, I, I said, Eileen, you can call me Dennis if you want, and we'll just be even on that. So the word today is going to be the name, say it together with me, Eileen. You'll all make me feel a little better, okay? We'll do that. So today her name is going to be Eileen. Eileen, we got it down. Great. Well, gang, I am so pumped. Someone saw me the other day and said, man, you got the biggest Bible in the world. This is not. This is a case. I, I carry everything inside this case that I might ever need in life. I was teaching a, a group of college students last week, and somebody said, this is the biggest thing I've ever seen. And uh, I said, you want to see what's inside of it? And I didn't realize this is worse than a woman's purse. Uh, I got in here. And I started going in. I have fisherman friends cough drops. When I speak, if any of you are pastors, the greatest speaking cough drop ever made, fisherman friends. I buy them in bulk. I started going in here, 
And I thought, what in the world do I have in here? Other cough drops. You ever, guys always wonder, what's a woman got in her purse? Oh, if I get to speaking and I get plugged up in my nose, got my nasal stuff, I can kind of clean out my nose a little bit. That's gross. Oh, I have my nitroglycerin. I had heart surgery three years ago. And uh, they said, you know, if you ever start having heart, I, I don't have any pains. I had a crazy thing in my heart. And so I could, you know, take a little shot and boy, we'll all get high. Um, but it's just, it's incredible. Oh, if an audience gets to me, I carry Tums and antacids right there. If I say this isn't going real well, you know, indigestion sets in. Oh, 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 I travel a lot with a lot of people and I sleep with different people. I didn't realize I had these. I have earplugs. I have earplugs. If I don't want to listen to you, I just put those, put those suckers in. People go to church. In our church, they carry earplugs. They don't want to listen to me so they can do it. So anyway, if you see me carrying this big thing, my suitcase, I'm worse than a lady with a purse. It is, it's really bad, really bad. Well, gang, we're going we're gonna to work on probably definitely my favorite Old Testament book. Uh, might be my favorite book of the Bible. When Kevin and Eileen asked me if I'd come, uh, uh, they said, what do you want to teach on? And I thought, man, you let me teach on any one thing. I'm going to Nehemiah. Let me teach on Nehemiah because I just love Nehemiah. I am a student of leadership. I'm a big student of leadership. I believe everything rises and falls on leadership. And if you want to change anything, you change with leadership. Leadership is so critical. I pour a lot of my time into working with pastors. Uh, I'll be working with a group of Nazarene pastors next month in Middlebury. We'll be working on leaders. When I was down in Mexico last week, Wednesday, we were working on leadership. We just work on this because I believe that what we really need today are just incredible leaders. And then leaders are the type of people who have an ability to build teams. Now, you're gonna see that as we get into this thing of Nehemiah, we're gonna work on this thing of teams. Um, Nehemiah is an amazing book. In fact, grab your Bibles, let's just jump in. Go to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, it is page 587, and uh, if you turn to 587, we'll be in the book of Nehemiah. And uh, I love Nehemiah because it's a story that has all the components of leadership training and development. It's one of these stories where you can pump sunshine. It's a story of an underachiever doing incredible things, kind of a Gideon story. Nehemiah is great, but ultimately, we're gonna discover Nehemiah is the story of teams, teams. So let's just, before we jump into Nehemiah, I want you right now to position yourself, just, just choose up amongst yourself like, no more than five, no less than three people. Form just, just say, hey, you be with me, okay? Like you two can grab him and whatever. Find yourself three to five, if you can, people. You say, let's do it. Make sure you know each other's names, know each other's net worth, and uh, just spend a little bit of time. See if you can do this, okay? Three to five, three to five. You got it? Okay, you're good. Are you okay? Okay, good. Now, let me give you, welcome, thanks for coming. Um, let me give you, let me give you your first three to five assignment. Are you ready? 
I want you in your little three to five pocket to agree upon what you think might have been the greatest team in history. You can go anywhere you want. You can go business, you can go politics, you can go government, warfare, sports, you can go anything you want. I don't care where you go. I want you to tell me what you think the greatest team ever assembled. And there's not a right answer or wrong answer. In fact, your answer is the right answer for you. Greatest team. I want you to think about teams. And I want you to come to consensus on your team. Greatest team assembled. Greatest team. I'm listening. Okay. Did you find it? Well, we're thinking Jesus and his 12. Which one? Jesus and his 12. That'll work. <laughs> Good. Team? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, team, real quick, though. I'm going to mess you up right now. I'm going to mess you up. You cannot take Jesus and his disciples. Can't take it. In fact, I'm going to mess you up further. You cannot take any, any Bible teams. You're being far too spiritual. Far too spiritual. Okay? No Bible, no teams out of the Bible, not Jesus and his disciples, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, come on, give you 60 seconds. Greatest team. You can go sports teams, business teams. Are you coming? You getting one? I messed you up, didn't I? Fifteen seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, here we go. I want to hear about some of these teams. I want to hear about some of these teams. Okay, which team? New York Yankees. New York Yankees. Which New York Yankees team? 36 to 39. 36 to 39. 36 to 39 New York Yankees. So, like, who would have been the star of the team? Joe DiMaggio, really? See, I thought you might have go to the Yankees like in the 60s, 50s and 60s. But, but that's fine. New York Yankees. Are there any other, are there any Yankee, are there any other Yankee haters here? Any Yankee haters? Yeah. Do you know, I feel so bad. When I was a kid for a while, I was a Yankee fan, and then I got saved. And, uh, <laughs> and so what we did, okay, now if you've got to be my age to appreciate some of my stuff. So what we did is we'd go down to, to Pulver's grocery store and buy baseball cards. Ah, what'd you pay? A couple cents for a pack and a piece of that terrible bubble gum. Oh, it was terrible. And we'd take Yankees because we hate them and we'd put them on our bike spokes to make noise. Yeah, yeah, Man Maris, the, the $50,000 baseball cards now. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, they made great noise. They did. Okay, Yankees. Did anybody have any sports teams? What'd you have? Oh, Mike Ruzioni. I met him in an airport one time. The, uh, the captain of the U.S. Hockey Olympic team. It's the same time I met Muhammad Ali. We were all in an airport real early. It's a crazy story. I stole Muhammad Ali's briefcase by accident. <laughs> and I walked away. That was crazy. The, the, the U.S. Olympic hockey team, when they beat the Russians. Some of these young people don't know about the good parts of history, do they? That was something. Do you know the name of the goalie of that team? Who was the name of the goalie? Anybody remember? Nope. Craig. His last name was Craig. His last, Jim Craig. You got it. Good job. Good. That was a team. Underdogs. How are they going to pull this thing off? It's just crazy. It's just crazy. Sometime I'll tell you the story of Muhammad Ali, John Saunders from ESPN, and uh, Michael Ruzioni. And we're all together. It's just the wildest story you've ever heard. And uh, that, that's an interesting one. Okay, other teams. Talk about other sports teams. Sports teams. <laughs> yep, Green Bay Packers. Green Bay Packers. I go back to Bart Starr. You know, Bart Starr, yeah. Yeah. You, Detroit Lions have got a great running back, Amir Abdullah. He's really good. He's from Nebraska. Anyway, um, okay, uh, come on. There's another team. Okay, okay, Tigers, what year? Go back, 60, 68 Tigers. Who was the great pitcher? Denny McLean. Mickey Lolich, Denny McLean, Al Kaline. Oh, yeah. That was great. Who? Willie Horton. Do you know in 1968, I was 16 years old, tells you how old I am. I stayed in Detroit a summer with my sister, and I went to see the 68 Detroit Tigers. And I just thought this is a cool, that old, what the old stadium? Oh. Yeah, that was rough. But anyway, uh, but I just became a big fan of the 68 Tigers. I knew up here somebody had to say the 68 Tigers. You had to say the 68 Tigers. It wasn't going to be there. Any other teams? What's that? Golden State Warriors. Yeah, I tell you what, they're on a roll. Stephen Curry and, and the whole, Stephon Curry, and the whole, the whole gang there. Did, I, I'm a Bulls fan. Cut that out. <laughs> Cut that out. We still have bad memories of Bill Lambeer. Oh. <laughs> You're a bad boy. You are a bad boy. But the, the bad boys were something else in that. Now, it's interesting when you study teams, you always discover that there may be stars or two, but it is not the accumulation of the greatest amount of talent that's put together. In fact, if you study the bad boys, the bad boys were good because they had, you know, I mean, Rodman isn't exactly a hole in this guy. And uh, you take Lambeer, you take uh, uh, Joe Dumars, uh, you take all these guys. But what happens is you put together these components that defy logic, that the sum total of parts are greater together than they are individually. And this is one of the things you'll see throughout all of Scripture. That when God puts people together in this thing called teams, the sum total of the individual parts is always greater than what the individuals would be alone. Teams are so incredible. I can go faster alone, but I can go further as a part of a team. I can go faster alone, 
but I can go further if I'm a part of a team. And this was the hardest things for me to learn in leadership was the value of a team. So here's what I want to do today. We're going to do a flyover with Nehemiah. This is going to be an ADHD quick flyover of the book of Nehemiah, okay? And then what we're going to do in the other four days is we're going to break down subparts of it. Because what I want you to do is I want you to get an idea of how God used an unlikely person to be a part of an incredible team to make an eternal difference. And this is what's really critical. Now, here's what I'm going to do in your minds. I want you in your minds to think team. If you're married, you're a part of a team. If you go to a church, you're a part of a team. Wherever you're working, you're a part of a team. It's really interesting as I look at Bayshore as I come in. I do a fair amount of these things, and it's kind of fun to go to a place you've never been before. Because I kind of watch how everything operates. I kind of see. So I drive in, I see, how's this thing work? And I look at it and I say, I really like this. These guys are really good. I go into the kitchen, cafeteria, you know, what's the line? I tend to be a guy that likes systems and organization. And I say, that's pretty cool. You go through here, you know where you sit. The team is there. Everybody works. I, there's something magnificent about teams. My wife is a gigantic Disney fan. I mean, you've never seen anybody more in love with Disney than this lady is. And uh, if you knew uh, the amount of time, whenever I speak in Florida, I'm around there, it's always Disney. In fact, if the schedule is we're down there for different times, we'll just get an annual pass for the year. And, and, and do what I love about Disney when I go organizationally is watching how they function as a team. That's, that, Disney is Disney. It's got its dark side to it. But I will say this, how they work together to make this guest experience is unbelievable. Now, watch Nehemiah, because this is going to be the ultimate team experience. The ultimate team experience. Nehemiah chapter 1. Start off with me in chapter 1. Nehemiah in chapter 1 begins to hear a story of what happened in Jerusalem. Okay? In verse 3 it says, those who survived the, it's the report he gets, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, here's the story. Nehemiah is removed hundreds of miles from his home turf. It's a little bit of what we worked with on last night in Jeremiah, Babylon. He is away from his home turf. What is his occupation? Did, did, you, did you see? Did it say there at all? Anybody know what he did for a living? He was back at the last verse of chapter 1. It says what he did. What was his occupation? He was the cupbearer, king's cupbearer. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Well, some people believe the king's cupbearer was the guy that if he was alive the next day, it was a good day. Because they thought they'd poison the king, so they would let him be the wine taster to taste it. And then if he lives, the king could have it. There's a little debate upon that, but he was the king's cupbearer, which is not a high position. He's just an average, common, ordinary guy doing a job as the king's cupbearer. But he gets this report that in Jerusalem, that's it, man. Jerusalem is the big thing that the walls are torn down. This thing's a mess. What did he do when he, when he, when he got the report? What did he say he did when he got the report? What happened to him? These things ought not to be. He sits down, he cries, he weeps. He just cries. This isn't right. This isn't right. This is not right. And he says, I, 
I refuse to let this be. Now, I want you to think about your life. It's really interesting when I meet people. People generally have a passion button inside where they've seen something that ought not to be. Mine is a local church. My dad was a superintendent for 17 years. I watched dysfunctional, unhealthy churches all my life. I saw more church fights and splits and underperforming, and I saw messes in my life. As a kid, 13, 14, 15 years old, I thought, this is not right. In fact, I always thought, if I ever have the chance to lead in a church, I want to build a healthy local church. I'm a local church guy. I believe in the local church. I believe the local church is the hope for changing the world. I'm just a church guy all the way, through and through. That's why I've had a lot of opportunities. No opportunity is greater than building a healthy local church. That's the thing that just keeps me up. I see everybody has these things. What is it that breaks your heart? I was speaking in Avon Park, Florida at a camp. And a gal, now she tells the story differently than I'll tell it. Because every time she hears me tell it, she says, that isn't quite how it went. And I said, it's my story, and it is how it went. But, uh, <laughs> but a gal came up to me, and she looked at me, and she said, you pastor a big church. I said, well, it's got a little bit of size. She said, so what's this big church going to do about HIV throwaway babies in Africa? And I, it wasn't on my radar. I mean, a lot of things are on my radar, but throwaway babies in Africa are not on my radar. And so I, I heard her, got her name, Malady, and so long, go to the next person. And then the next service, she came up at the service. So you've been thinking about those throwaway babies? What this big church is going to do about HIV babies in Africa? She did it about the fourth day, and finally I said to her, do you want to talk about it? She said, well, yeah. So let's, let's get together. So her husband and Christy and I got together, and I watched this lady pour out her heart about these babies that are born, placed in dumpsters, in fact, taken out of pit latrines with maggots in their eyes. And she said, somebody's got to do something about these babies. Somebody's got to do something. And, and to make a long story short, she was willing to take her life, and she was willing to go into Kenya. We partnered with her, and out of that came the birth of the AGC Baby Center, where now we've had nearly 300 babies rescued and adopted by Kenyan families. It's an amazing story of what happened. But it all started with one lady, one lady who had her heart broken and then went in to build this team. So Nehemiah is going to be the story of this guy hundreds of miles away from home, gets a burden, breaks his heart, breaks his heart. And he says, I've got to do something. And he starts the journey. Now, what he's going to do is he starts the journey. And we're going to work on this in the days that come. He is one of the most strategic leaders you'll ever find anywhere in Scripture. What he does is unbelievable. Surveys at night. Gets a few good men. We'll talk about ownership. How he got other people to own the vision. He didn't do things to people. He did things with people. This thing begins to build. Let's go down. What I want to do is I'm going to take you on your sheets just so we make sure we cover where we need to go. And I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask, track with me on these. I notice that there are eight traits in Nehemiah that are traits that you find in championship teams. In families, this works in families. This works in churches. This works in offices. Works in business. Works in the Kiwanis Club. It works everywhere. These are eight biblical principles that I believe work well that Nehemiah models for us. Here we go. Ready? On your sheet, number one. Championship teams are dedicated to a task. Dedicated to a task. 
This one thing I do. This one thing I do. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 20. Nehemiah, if you look at that verse, Nehemiah identifies what the mission is, what they're going to do. And he looks in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 20. Someone who's got a big, big outside voice. I want you just to read this verse real loud. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 20. Somebody just take off big voice so we all can hear it. Ready? Here we go. We will arise and build this one thing we do. They simply say, here's our task. Here's what we're going to do. Decide your purpose. That's your next blank. Decide your purpose quickly. Decide your purpose quickly. Why? This is the, this is the what and the why. What are we doing? What's our mission? What is our mission? What's our mission? And you can also ask yourself the question, why is it the mission? Now, this is where we get all messed up sometimes in teams, in your family. If you'd say, our I don't know if your family has a mission statement. I don't know if you have a mission statement. And I'm not big on vision statements, mission statements, and these things can kind of get mixed up sometimes. But what is your mission? Why do you exist? Why does the team you're a part of exist? So if you're talking about your family, you'd say, why, what, what's our mission here? Christy and I, Christy and I have really tried to work to zero in on this thing of what's our mission? Why do we exist? Part of the reason I'm here at Bayshore Camp is it aligns with my mission. My mission, what, one of my main things, obviously, is to glorify God and to make fully committed disciples, but it's also on building healthy churches. So when Kevin... And Elaine asked me, Eileen, asked me to come. I come, I have to say, does this match my mission? And to be honest with you, I've got a little subplot going on here. My subplot is, is I want to see out of this people go back to their local churches and say, man, I'm on board. We're going to do this thing. And we're going to take Elkton and Cass City and we're going to take DeFord and Seboing and you name your town, Bay City. We're going to do this thing and we're going to do it by working together. That's a part of my mission. Whenever I hang out with pastors, I love hanging out with pastors because that's the key to help me accomplish. So, so what, is your, what is this one thing you're dedicated to, this task? Focus everything around that purpose. That's your next blank. Focus everything around that purpose. Now, here's where we run into problems. I want to introduce to you a little issue that comes up in the process of accomplishing this and is called agenda harmony. Agenda harmony. Here's one of the things that I've discovered. One of the things I've discovered is far too many times we get together in teams and families, we don't have agenda harmony. We're not all on the same page. We're not all on the same page. We have different agendas. We're singing different parts. When we work in the local church, see, see, excuse me, Nehemiah's agenda was one thing. Success we measure by one thing. Is that stinking wall going to be rebuilt or is it not? That's all he cared about. I've got to get that wall rebuilt. 
He's got to keep the people focused on that purpose because as we get into the chapters, you're going to see all kinds of stuff going on over here and over there. And I'm mad about how my kids are treated and this isn't working right and this is costing too much. You're going to watch chaos break loose off the charts, chapter 4 and chapter 5. Nehemiah says, I'm going to keep us on this common same song thing that we're always going to keep agenda harmony. Now for me, as a pastor of a local church, our mission is very simple, and that is we exist to make fully committed disciples. We just exist to make fully committed disciples. So every time we get together in a room, we talk, we say, does this push us forward in our mission, or does it not push us forward? Is this going to help us, or is it not? We just spent uh, a lot of money retrofitting a 20-year-old worship center, and it was a tricky issue. Why do we have to do this? Why is this necessary? And we had to ask ourselves this question, what's our agenda? Our agenda is making fully committed disciples. Does this help us accomplish that agenda or does it not? So everything winning teams do is they're dedicated to a task. Probably real soon up here, you'll drive by high schools, probably see it now, and you'll see a football team working out. You'll watch them working out. Do you know what their goal is? They're dedicated to a task, and that is to win. They're going to win games. In, in the back of their mind, they want to win a sectional or a regional or a state championship. They can tell you exactly what it is. So how are we doing? For those of you business people, you remember Peter Drucker said it so well. Every team or business needs to ask two questions. What business are we in and how's business? I think sometimes in the church we ought to do that. We get together. What business are we in? We're not in the business of having services. We're not in the business of collecting people. If we're in the business of collecting people, let's just bring in some great gospel group or music group every Sunday and we'll collect a lot of people. What business are we in making fully committed disciples? How's business? I measure that sometimes by the number of baptisms that take place. We're not Baptists, but I have to have some way to say, how are we doing? And sometimes we say, you know what, we're not doing real well. A lot of activity, a lot of noise, nickels, and numbers. But I'm not so sure we're seeing changed lives by the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. So, the team you do with your families, whatever team you're in, you understand, number one, you're dedicated to a task. You're dedicated to a task. By the way, here's what happens. You have to have agenda harmony, but when you don't have agenda harmony, you'll have mission drift. Mission drift. Mission drift is where you get off course and you get into something else. And pretty soon, all of a sudden, this becomes more fun and more enjoyable and you get lost along the way. Now, here's what you're going to see with Nehemiah. As we unpack the book, you're going to see Nehemiah is masterful at not letting mission drift. Nehemiah says to the two guys that try to stop him, Sanballat and Tobiah, he said, why should I stop what I'm doing to come over and negotiate with you? I'm not, I'm not leaving this mission. This is my calling. I see that happen in families all the time. I see moms and dads who simply say, well, right now in this season, we're going to have to go into imbalance. I'm going to have to go out and earn a lot of money, and we're going to do this, and then someday our kids are going to have more, and they drift off the thing. No, we're going to build a healthy family, and they get caught in a drift. They get sucked into this thing, and I love it when people stay focused on that. Okay, we got our fly. Number two, number two. The second thing you notice that you're going to see as we fly over Nehemiah, and I'll unpack the story for you as we go, is they're going to be willing to work. Willing to work. Anything 
that's going to be worth attaining has this thing called work. Okay, those of you dinosaurs here, if you're, if you're younger, you, this will just totally, you'll totally miss it. But if you're a dinosaur here, you remember a program way back. You almost got to be older than me to remember this. By the name of, Do, a guy by the name of Dobie Gillis. <laughs> there are dinosaurs in the house. And there was one guy on there, and his name was Maynard G. Krebs. You got it. And there was one word that just sent him into outer oblivion. Anybody remember what that word was? Work. work. That's it. He'd hear that word work, and he'd go, work. You know, just, it, just, it, just, it, just, it just sent him into outer oblivion. Because Maynard G. Krebs was the laziest person God ever made. And it was really interesting when you'd watch the program. I probably was, you know, just a little guy when I, when I saw that. But it always was so funny with the name of Maynard G. Krebs. And every time, Dr. Neff, you did a great job. Every time he'd hear that word, work, what would he do? Say it again. Work. work. He, just, he just went into this crazy, he went into this crazy thing and he did it. Because he had this horrible aversion to work. Now, what you're going to notice in Nehemiah is the wall is going to get done. And how it's done. Where does the money come from? Where do the people come from? How does he handle the opposition? But I don't want you to forget one thing. There was just work. A big outside voice on Nehemiah 4.6. Nehemiah 4.6. Give me a big outside voice. Someone that reads this out loud, just, just get your big voice out and read it. Someone real quick. Nehemiah 4.6. I love that last phrase. For the people worked how? What does it say? With all their heart. That actually, I think, may be on one of the cornerstones. We have a couple of them in our church. I put it in there. For the people worked with all their hearts. They just worked with all their hearts. They just did unbelievable things. I got, I got, uh, what time is it? Um, Let's go on. Let's go on. We're not going to make it through here. There's a debate between spectatorship and participation. Spectatorship and participation. Um, you know, the greatest gift that my dad gave me was a gift of loving hard work. Uh, the reason I love camp is I spent three summers, all entire summer, working side by side with my dad as he directed a camp. And we'd go out and we'd just work our tails off. We'd get in the truck, drive out 30 miles, go to work all day and go back. And Dad just taught me this thing. It's in our, it's in our background, it's in our family, that there are two types of people who, in this world, those who work and those who don't. And those who work are going to have better things, and those who don't aren't going to have better things. And uh, you got to learn to do it. Now, sometimes I went awry on it and kind of got caught out of balance on it. But one of the things we've got to do, and, and parents, if I could just challenge you younger parents, Man, learn what it is to give your kids responsibility. Expect a lot out of them. Uh, press them into doing things. They're going to whine. They're going to be the only kids in the universe that have to do this. And everybody else's parents are nice. And you're witches. And you're mean. And I'm going to run away. And you, you do it in a loving way. But hold a standard where they've got to work. They've got to work. Because if you build that into them, it's going to be absolutely incredible. Now, what you're going to see with Nehemiah is it, how many trips did he make from Babylon all the way back to, to Jerusalem. And that, that's like six, seven hundred miles, isn't it? 
He didn't have an airplane. He didn't have a car. He didn't have anything. He's got to get all this, all this lumber you're going to read about, all the stone, all the brick he's got to do. This is going to be back-breaking, difficult work. But you're going to see God honored because he had that ability to work. Uh, one of my life verses, I love this, um, is Proverbs 21, 31. Write this one down. Um, Proverbs 21, 31. We shall prepare the horses for battle, for the Lord gives the victory. Isn't that incredible? We have to do our part before we can ask God to do his part. I cannot stand up on a Sunday morning and say, oh, God, didn't have any time to study this week. Sorry, you know it's been a hard week. Would you just show up? I've got to get my horses ready for battle. And, and I've got to do that in every way. And in everything you do, in your family, you have to understand you have responsibilities that you cannot outsource to anyone else. And so you have to be able to do that. Number two is the whole thing of willing to work. Number three, number three, championship teams, championship teams follow the leader. Follow the leader. Now what you're going to notice in the book of Nehemiah as we take through this is the art of followership. There's a lot of stuff out these days on leadership. I, my library is loaded with leadership books. There are very few books on the art of following. Nobody talks about following very much. And what you're going to begin to see in Nehemiah is a leader who by his presence commands followership. Um, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18. Nehemiah says, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. Nehemiah, at this point, is beginning to create in people this desire to follow. This desire to follow. Okay, back to your groups for a second. Okay, get, get back in your groups. Got to do a fast one here. In your groups, in your groups, I want you to talk about a person that you, uh, now you can't go to the New Testament. Throw Jesus out. I mean, you can keep Jesus, but he can't participate in this exercise because he wins everything. I want you to talk about a person that you say, there is someone who leads well and has developed incredible followership. Now, it could be athletics, business, sports. It could be anywhere you want to go. Someone who had the ability to lead well and created people behind them that followed him in accomplishing the build, in building the team. Okay? You're going to have to think, boy, i got a couple that come to my mind real quick. Go ahead. Go at it. I'm going to give you two minutes. Two minutes. Who is the person? This is hard. One minute. That's a good one. That's a good one. 
I don't know him, but that's good. <laughs> Who was the guy the other night? The guy Tom is Catholic. Right? Domino's, you're talking Yeah, Domino's, you're talking What's Tom uh, Monahan? Monahan. Monahan. Is it Monahan? Right. I think so. Uh-huh, Tom Monahan. I didn't know him, but I heard lots of stories right. about him. Right, he's got a big farm. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. so he's strong Catholic. Right. Very There's strong tons Catholic. of money to Catholic churches. Yeah. 15 seconds. 15 seconds. Okay, let's wind it up and come back together. Are you ready? I want to hear names. You don't have to defend them at all. I want to hear names. Who you Okay, what's that? Bill Gates, Microsoft. Steve Jobs. Winston Churchill. Who? Who? I didn't say leaders that can win games. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Keep going. What? Let's go to the next one. Who's that? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm a Cubs fan. Oh, you got the one I thought it was thinking of. Billy Graham. Did some of you think about that? When I, I, I've never thought of this before, but Billy Graham intrigues me because he had the ability to lead, but when you look at Billy Graham, people followed. But, not, but, but his leadership team, Cliff Barrows and George Beverly Shea and... Who's the guy that played the organ? I mean, uh, all these guys. They, he built this team, and, and they followed him for a long period of time. It's absolutely fascinating. Fascinating. Give me some more. Ronald Who? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. Yeah, fascinating. That's good. That's okay. That is true. We're not saying whether it's good or bad. Vince Lombardi, Vince Lombardi, Bill Belichick, that hurts, that hurts, okay. And now, now it, it's interesting because here's, here's what we want to do. We want to find leaders that not just win and accomplish a task, but we want to find leaders who are able to transfer the vision, transfer the vision, transfer of the vision. Now this is really critical. This is really critical. Uh, let me give you, let me give you, whoa, 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 follow the part. Here we go. Let me, let me give you, uh, follow the leader, understand, you're blank under number three, understand the transfer of vision, the transfer of vision. Vision transfer is one of the trickiest things, and I don't want to be too sophisticated here. Um, when you can take your vision and it becomes somebody else's vision, and they own it. Transfer a vision, and then uh, develop the art of followership, the fine art of followership. That's the second blank there. Transfer a vision is so critical. And obviously, Jesus was masterful at this. You talk about transfer of vision. When Jesus died, the disciples picked up the vision and said, we'll do anything. We're going to go. Jesus looked at him and said, greater, you'll do greater things than I've done. And the disciples said, yep, we will. 
And when you read the book of Acts, I mean, the stuff they're doing is absolutely unbelievable. Let me tell you a little trick I use. Uh, in our church, when, when, I, when, when I go to a home, and, I, and obviously now because of size, I can't do it like I did years ago. When I go to home or meet someone that's new in the church, I look for one word in my visit. If I go to their home and they say, oh, Dave, I have to tell you, we love your church, your the vision has been transferred. But when I go into a home or talk to somebody and they say, Pastor, we love our church, something inside me goes, yes, yes, it's theirs. It's theirs. I don't know where you work at, but in your workplace, if you're doing something to people, there'll always be a measure of resistance. If you do something with people, there'll be a greater chance for success. And here's what Nehemiah's masterful at. We're, we're going un, to unlock this. I feel bad because all I'm doing is just giving you the big outline for where we're going this week. He's a master at not doing things to people. Now, Hitler did something to people and created this, created this emotion, created this movement that was defeated and didn't sustain. Jesus did something with the disciples that created a movement that has encompassed the entire earth. That out of Jesus and 12 disciples, all of a sudden, everywhere I go all over the world, that thing has just multiplied beyond because they were able to transfer the vision. Transfer the vision. You see, this is what I love when I see parents who are effectively able to take the vision they have for their children at young ages, and all of a sudden it becomes a part of the ethos of the child. Now, a lot of us have had kids that have disappointed us. They made choices and decisions that disappoint. And some of you have experienced that. But what would happen if you could lead at a level where your vision becomes their vision? I love it. I just love it. That, to me, that's the highest level of leadership is where all of a sudden people have picked it up. You're going to see that in Nehemiah. You're going to see that Nehemiah, one guy starts with getting this word from God that says, go and rebuild the wall. And all of a sudden... These people all say, let us rebuild the wall as they come together. Incredible, incredible stuff. Number four, number four is uh, overcome great obstacles. Overcome great obstacles. Now, when we, when, we, when we go through the book and we're gonna go through it, you're gonna see this, that they had to overcome great obstacles, incredible obstacles. Leaders have, and you're going to see this as you parent, you're going to see this as you work in your workplace, you're going to see this as you work in a local church, in anything you do, you are going to meet an obstacle. It's not a matter of if you're going to meet obstacles, it's a matter of when you're going to meet them. My dad used to say to me when I was running camps, he, and my kids were little, he said, don't ever forget this, buddy, little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. And I thought, man, that is wise. That is wise. We're going to have obstacles that come in. We have obstacles in our marriages. Uh, Christy and I are as different as any two people can be. We are just total opposites. She tends to be more introvertish. I tend to be more extrovertish. She tends to get up at 4.30 in the morning. I'm probably going to bed a little bit before then. You know, I mean, it's, I, I, I have to go to bed early, but we're just, we're just wired differently. She's a perfectionist. I'm a slob. The reason she travels with me is to keep me organized, you know, and I'll find it. You'll lose it. I'll find it, and it works that way. Took one of the pastors with me last week in Mexico, and I said, I understand you're doing Christy duty. Make sure I take my passport and my phone home with me and keep asking me where that stuff is at, because I tend to be a bit of a slob. Now, that creates challenges. 
That creates, it creates tensions. Oh, whenever we do premarital work, I don't do it anymore, but one of the guys that does it says, you really have trouble whenever a spender marries a saver. You are going to have a war. And one of our guys on staff said, no, 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 that's not what's bad. What's bad is where a spender marries a spender. And yeah, bankruptcy. <laughs> he, he said, you're really going to have trouble. We have to work through obstacles. In fact, you're going to see this. You're going to see this thing on working through obstacles. You have to identify you have to identify your obstacles. Overcome great obstacles, number four. Identify your obstacles. Now, here's what he's going to do. He is going to be able to laser in what it is. This is leadership at a high level. What it is that's going to be resistant to me accomplishing what God's called me to do. Whether you're in the marketplace, whether you're in your church, whether you're home, where is the point of resistance going to come? He identifies the obstacles. What are the challenges? Had a couple that came in the other day. They're going to get married. We're putting them in the premarital counseling program. They come out of two faith backgrounds that are so different. And I said, can I tell you, you guys are going to have two kids. How are you going to raise them? How's it going to go? They said, well, we never thought about it. And I said, you think about that now before you say I do. Because you come out of this background, which is strong. You come out of this background, which is strong. You guys have a recipe for disaster. What we do, we do together. And leaders have that ability to help people identify. So you're going to see they're going to identify the obstacles. And then the second one is they're going to develop their strategy. They're going to develop their strategy. There's a little phrase I use. And maybe you might want to grab this. Maybe this one you want to write down. It's not what happens to you in life, but your response to what happens to you in life that's going to make the difference. It's not what happens to you in life. It's your response to what happens to you in life that's going to make the difference. You're going to see Nehemiah, as we unpack this this week, you're going to see Nehemiah all of a sudden get caught in some tough, tough situations. I mean, it's like he's getting bombed on all sides. In fact, his arrows are not from the outside, they're from the inside. The people who we thought were supporting him weren't supporting him. So here's what we say. It's not what happens to you but it's your response to what happens to you that determines the outcome. Now, the higher you go in leadership, in your own person, self-leadership. By the way, I haven't even mentioned this. The greatest leadership is self-leadership. Can you lead yourself? Can you keep your mouth closed when it needs to be closed? Can you say courageous things when they need to be said? Can you discipline yourself? Do you have self-leadership when it comes to your finances? When it comes to your fitness? Do you have self-leadership when it comes to your attitude? Do you have self-leadership when it comes to your tongue? The whole book of Proverbs, if you study it, is built on the power of self-leadership. In Proverbs, it's called self-discipline. See, you'll never be able to lead at high levels until you master the first challenge, and that's self-leadership. And, and so as we look at this, one of the obstacles is, is developing your own strategy for self-leadership. It's interesting, last week in Mexico, the gal that picked us up at the airport, one of the leaders in the movement, I was going through some issues that they had had in their movement, and I said, before we get to where we're going, talk about what's happening with XYZ. And she looked at me and she said, I don't say anything to those people about that. And I said, why? She said, because I made a commitment, I never want to have to apologize. And she said, I talk too quickly, and if I speak, I'll have to say I'm sorry, and she said, I hate having to say I'm sorry. So I've learned the best way is to cut it off on the front end and not to do it. I thought, wow, she's mastering self-leadership. Now you're going to see, I'm just trying to get you to be ready to go tomorrow. 
when we start moving into some stuff with Nehemiah, the importance of understanding these qualities and characteristics that the story as we work through it, we're not gonna work through it today, we'll work through it tomorrow, has in there. So you identify the obstacle, and guess what? You may be the obstacle. Ah, nuts, I hate that. I have discovered the problem, and the problem are I. You know, that is not a lot of fun. Number five. This is one we're going to have fun. I'm not sure if we'll do this one Wednesday or Thursday. We're going to have a ball on this one. Championship teams have an ability to work through their differences. They have to work through their differences. Uh, which team do you want to talk about? You want to talk about sports teams? Where it is not the greatest talent on the field that determines who wins. It's the ability to work together that determines it. The accumulation of talents, gifts, and abilities doesn't always guarantee a victory. You can take a great mom and a great dad, but if they're not working together, you're not going to have a great family. You can take the most talent, and this is what's really interesting. You see this in the NBA a lot. And I recognize that, that you know, Golden State kind of defied a little bit. But even look at this year with what happened with Cleveland. I mean, you talk about talent on a team. They were not short of talent. You put LeBron James and Kyrie Irving and the big white guy, you know, you, you put them all together, you're, you're going you're gonna to have, you, you got talent. But there's some dynamic that's missing, and that is teams that succeed have an ability to work through their differences. Now, we're going to spend a whole day working on this, how different personality types have to work together. God has created you differently than other personality types. And we'll, we'll spend some time working on how this works. Nehemiah gives us a model for learning how to work through the differences of your personality. Understand personality types. That's your blank. Understand personality types. It's really interesting. I see this in churches all the time. In fact, one of the major disruptive things in local churches is people have different personalities, and prophets and mercy givers will kill each other. Prophet looks at a mercy giver and says, you compromise, you don't stand on the truth. The mercy giver says, can't we just all love each other? Can't we hold hands and sing kumbaya one more time, you know? And they just go at it in a hard way. And, and, and that's, what, that's why you see churches just self-destruct. The way Jesus wired it is none of us are the full meal deal. None of us have all four personality types. And we have to have the other three, but we have to balance those. We have to learn how to come together as we're going to work in a team. And uh, we'll have some fun. We'll just take one whole day, and we'll work through this thing. We're going to take one whole day, and we may, we may divide this in one day doing that, another day doing the other. We have to learn how to work through conflict. Maybe what I'm going to do is just take, just take one day, and we'll just work on conflict. Conflict in families. Conflict in churches. Conflict in neighborhoods. Just conflict. Can, can I tell you a secret? We as Christians are really bad on this. We stink up the joint on working through conflicts. We tend to push all conflict underground. We or or you know, watch what I say where I say it. Or we go the other way and we push conflict above ground and we just want to beat each other's brains in. And there's it's kind of interesting since you're all kind of different denominations here. We'll have a little bit of fun that day because we'll talk about who does conflict how. I like to do that the last day just before I get in my car and leave. And uh, <laughs> I have the spiritual gift of offending everybody. And, uh, and we'll do that just before we leave. So you got to work through your differences. 
And now you're going to see you're going to see the obstacles. If you want to cheat, just write down Nehemiah. I just Nehemiah four in your sheet is the obstacles, and you're going to see that whole thing come out in Nehemiah four. Nehemiah five, you're going to see working through their differences, the internal conflicts, and I'll work with you on that. Number six, cookies are ten minutes away. Number six, <laughs> you have to reach down for extra effort. Um, Championship teams have the ability, when the heat comes down, to go into reserve and they can gather internal strength that is just amazing. Reach down for extra effort. Uh, big outside voice, Nehemiah 4.10. Who's got that voice? And we'll read Nehemiah 4.10. Read it. Don't have to read this too fast. We might have to read this twice to get it. Because if you're going to be a part of a group, a family, a team, a church and you face obstacles, and you face obstructions, you've got to find this reserve that says we're going to make it through it. Nehemiah 4.10, big outside voice. Love it. Read it again. Good job. Read it one more time. This is good. Yes, a repeat performance and, and do it with the same inflections. I want you to catch this. this. This is critical. This is about a group of people who are tired. They are fatigued. They want to quit. They want to give up. This is the marathon runner at mile 19 where they've hit the wall. This is the guy that's been serving as church board chairman for 14 years and is tired of obstinate people all around them. This is the pastor who says, I want to resign and get out of this place. Has the somewhere else disease. This is the volunteer that has served in that church and has not seen fruit. Here we go. Ready? Read verse 11. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to their work. Read verse 12. <laughs> You're doing good. Keep going. Come on, keep going. Going. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Come on, keep going. Remember, the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, I love this. I love this. this now, this, this is incredible. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll take one time and we'll deal with this whole thing of fighting for your families. This is incredible. Because what happens is, at the moment where they're the lowest, the leader rises up and says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And then he pulls a masterful moment. And he says, and fight for your families. It just got personal. It just got personal. He didn't say fight for their families, or he didn't even say fight for God. He said, you've got sons and daughters and husbands and wives and grandkids. This thing's worth fighting for. I just love it. 
It's kind of interesting. This is kind of like, I live close to Notre Dame. I'm not a Notre Dame fan, don't worry. In fact, I don't really like Notre Dame. I, I told uh, Kevin, I have spoken to the Notre Dame team twice the nights before their games to do devotions and stuff, and I feel like a hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> Go out there, guys, do the best you can. Give it all you got. Hope you get beat. But I didn't say that. But. I noticed, I noticed I haven't been invited lately to speak to the team. I, I think it showed through. But it's interesting when you go in those moments in the locker room. You know, at Notre Dame they do, you know, win one for the Gipper. You know, they got these big things and they do these rants that they go on and stuff. It's just absolutely incredible. At Nebraska they've got this one before the bowl game where they won the national championship, one of their many national championships. Uh, you like that? Uh, they've got this thing, one of the players does this speech and just goes off. And it's like, wow. Leaders have the way when things are the darkest to turn on the lights. They have a way to turn on the lights in the midst of the darkest moment. And we're all going to be tested. You're going to be testing your family. Never forget when Bruce and Sue got a call at 6 o'clock on a Sunday night. And then they called me. And at 6 o'clock on a Sunday night, raced up to Elkhart General Hospital. Their son had been coming to a youth choir practice at church and just got distracted and 16 years old, took a car into a tree head on. They were up at the hospital and it's over. He dies. And I watched a dad. I watched a dad lead. I'll never forget it. He gathered the family in. The boy was the, I believe, the oldest of all the kids, and there were four girls. And he got mom and dad around there, and I just, I'm just standing behind, and he got them around, and he said, now kids, we still trust the Lord. We hurt. This wasn't what we wanted, but we're going to trust God. And God's, gonna, God's got a plan. And he just started praying. I sat there, and I thought to myself, oh, Jesus, I'm this big. Bruce is this big. I want to lead like that. I want to lead like that. When the lights go out will be the test of your leadership. Some of you are going to get a call from a daughter or a son. You're going to get a call from somebody. Someday it's going to be just terrible. How could you do something so stupid? You embarrass the family. You're going to have maybe, maybe you've gone through one of these moments. And you're going to say, I, I don't know if I can take this. Something rises up inside in that moment and says, we're going to do it. We had moved into, uh, in 1980, we started building a new building. We relocated the church in 81. We dedicated the building in July of 81, moved in July of 81, relocated. It's, it's, a, it's a neat story. And we had built the building of our dreams for a church. I, I really believe that someday the church might run 300 people, that, that we had a big vision. And uh, we thought this, this, this may happen someday if God blesses us. And so we built this building. In building the building, we had put in a, an experimental geothermal heating system that was closed loop, where there was a 100,000-gallon tank of water underneath part of the building. It's, that's a whole nother bad story. But um, all I remember is in January that year, we didn't have church one Sunday because of the weather. I drove out Monday morning through the blizzard just to check things. And in a brand-new building, less than six months old, a pipe had broken in the ceiling and 70,000 gallons of water <coughs> just collapsed the whole ceiling in that area and it failed. 
we were at the maximum debt we could be at. The debt we were at then would be the equivalent of us having a $20 million debt now. It was a different scale then. And it all collapsed. The lights go out. And that's going to be a time in leadership you're going to find out what you're made of. We actually had moved to Napanee and had only been there four or five months before that. And we discovered that there was a case of someone that worked in the church who had worked with fourth and fifth graders was a sexual predator with kids. I had worked with the police. I began to suspicion things, called the police in. I had asked the police before they made the arrest if I could confront the man biblically first. I brought in parents of the girls that had been molested. Brought the man in, just did a biblical confrontation, tried to do it according to Mark and Corinthians. I got all done, prayed with the man, got all done. Then when I said amen, the police were watching through a, through a side window the whole time. They were very concerned about the wisdom and safety of this. And got all done and said, called him by name, and I said, now you're going to be arrested. It's just an unbelievable story. I remember walking home that night, and I said to Christy, um, get the boxes out. Probably time to move. This church will never in this community stand what's going to happen. We'll be scarred forever. The next Sunday morning, I stood up before the entire church. And I had to say, you all know, gave his name and his wife. And I said, a deep, deep sin has come into the camp. Visitors were present. It was hard. It was awkward. We called it out for what it was in a gracious way. I said, I want to pass out stones. If anybody wants to throw them and stone him, you can line up and stone him. Uh, he's, re he's repenting. He's got a lot of work to do. we got damage to do, but this isn't my church. This is God's church. You know what's really interesting? What I thought would be the darkest moment in the history of the church became the greatest moment in the history of the church. And people came together and rallied. And when the article broke on the news, there was no reference to the church. There was reference to the fact that he was a public school teacher and none to the church. It's not what happens to you, but how you respond to what happens to you that makes the difference. Now, you're going to see in Nehemiah, the lights are going to go out, and he's going to help them reach down. Okay, here we go. Let's, let's wind it up and get to eating cookies. Here we go. Cookie monsters are loose in the tabernacle. Here we go. Are you ready? Uh, number six, reach down for extra effort. Discover maximum performance. Choose to fail in some areas so you can succeed in others. Discover maximum performance, your first blank under six. Second one is choose to fail in some areas so you can succeed in others. We're not going to talk about that. That'd be fun to talk about. You will not succeed in everything. Parents, I now hereby free you from having to be the perfect parent that has your kid in 4-H, AAU basketball, football, you're in jiu-jitsu and martial arts and everything else. I free you from feeling you are being a bad parent. I free you now. Do what God's called you to do and choose to fail in some things so you can succeed in the best things. I feel better now that I've said that. Okay, number seven, be willing to pay the price. Be willing to pay the price. You're going to see that in chapter 4, verse 16. Chapter 4, verse 16. The price is high. Big outside voice. Someone's going to read 416 for me. Are you ready? 416. Here we go. From that day, I 
This is absolutely fantastic. What he does is says, in order for us to get this thing done, we got to take half of you and arm you, and the other half get to work. So it's going to go slow. This is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And he did a strategy to slow down the completion. He said, we're going to pay the price, and the price is going to be harder work. We've got to shift up a gear. This is no time for us to be lazy. We've got, and people began to get the idea. Now, he posted them by families. All of a sudden, I say, you're working beside your kids and grandkids. You're protecting them. This isn't just a job, buddy. Your family's on the line. So all of a sudden, he's got them positioned. He says, and by the way, you're going to be the family that's going to be digging. You're going to be the family that's going to be protecting. And he created this strategy to say to them, we're going to be willing to pay the price. The price is high. Nothing worth being accomplished is accomplished without sacrifice. Without sacrifice. I can think of the guy that so believed in the mission that he went and, and leveraged his life insurance policy to make the biggest gift he could to the church. I can think of a gal that actually in an offering one Sunday took an engagement ring and put it in the offering and said, I so believe in this mission. I believe God's going to use, I mean, you wouldn't believe the sacrifices, incredible sacrifice. I had a guy drive a, a semi-tractor up on the par church parking lot, parked it and said, here it is, it belongs to you. Had a guy give a, a two-year-old car and said, here it is. I believe so much that God's going to bless this thing. I'm all in to do it. Wow. Sacrifices are unbelievable. And my sacrifice was so piddly compared to theirs. In fact, Christy and I kind of laugh about it today. We were all prepared to have something of our dreams. We were going to get a hot tub. We always wanted a really nice hot tub outside. We'd saved our money for a hot tub. And in the whole movement, God just simply said, put your hot tub on the altar. Every time we see a hot tub somewhere, we say, that's probably ours. We put ours on the altar. She said the other day, do you think we'll ever get one? I said, you're going to have the biggest, nicest hot tub in heaven. Until then, we're going to be willing to pay the price of sacrifice to do it. Now, you're going to see the people paid the price. And it got really, really hard. Willing to pay the price. Behind every successful venture, there is a price to be paid. That's your first blank. Next blank. Don't talk about how easy something is. Don't talk about how easy something is. Instead, challenge them with the price. Let's wind it up. Here we go. Leaders, they know their God. They know their God. Big outside voice, Nehemiah 6.16. Somebody. Not all at once. Nehemiah 6.16, here we go. Yep, I think so. Six sixteen. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. We can overcome obstacles. Here we go. Six sixteen. Big outside voice. With the help of our God. Now, now, what I did is I took you from a burden to the finished wall and did a quick flyover. The last blank, winners have a deep faith in God. God will not fail us. In his time, he will accomplish his purpose and do his thing. The story of where I pastor is a church that for 100 years was 100 people. They tell me that that's a lie. They say for half those years it was 50 people. And the old-timers would come and say, you make it better than it was. It's a church that divided twice, had church fights, and had two terrible splits. 
I found myself when I was, when I was preaching, I'm left-handed. You would think when I speak that I would speak to the left, wouldn't you? If I'm left-handed, I'd go to the left. I found myself always preaching to the right. I couldn't figure out, why do I preach to the right? Why do I preach to the right? You know what it was? Because on the right side were all the old saints of the church who refused to quit and give up. There was Dave and Bessie and Willie and Dora, Lowell and Marge, all the old saints of the church. And, and the old saints of the church understood that they knew what it was like to go through tough times. But in that moment, they now had witnessed, not because I showed up, but because the people had a mind to work and realized that the work was done with the help of our God. 